you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 8. We'll be there in just a little bit. You remember last week we started a, oh, I don't know, two or three week series. Uh, I really wanted to talk about and give you an understanding of, of what the church really is. I think our church itself has, has come to the point and grown, and just as you uh, saw here with Logan and, uh, and all of the other high school kids and all of the things that are going on around us and all of the people who are teaching the Bible and growing in the Word of God, uh, I, I think that uh, you know it's time for us to stop and really examine where we're at so you have a better understanding. I said last week you know, that my goal has always been, you know, I know that in the book of Revelation you have seven, seven periods of church history. And it spans from the early church, which starts there in uh, uh, the book of Acts, chapter 20 with Ephesus, and then runs all the way up through uh, where we're at today in the Laodicean church period. And it's no secret that we know that the most fruitful, profitable time in the history of the church was the Philadelphian church age, which really starts with the uh, coming out of the King James Bible and then lasts for almost 400 years till uh, the rejection of the King James Bible. And I, I made it very clear that my goal, understanding what I understand about the history and the Bible, is in the midst of the Laodicean church period to build a Philadelphian church. Build a church that is built on the same principles, the sound foundation that they were uh, during that Philadelphian church period. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of, we saw last week about the diversity of the church. And there's a lot of diversity here uh, with the people that God has given us. And I want you to understand also why we operate the way we do. Uh, you know, uh, I want those of you who desire to be part of this work, this ministry, not just a spectator, not just a sightseer, but somebody who really wants to be involved. Uh, I want you to and teach you the inner workings of how a New Testament church is so, and how it works. So you can better find where, you're, where you fit in. And there's something for everybody here. And you can do whatever, basically, you want to do. And you remember last week we talked about models. And I talked about two aspects of learning about God, models and patterns. Models will always be the overall concept of an idea. The pattern will be the structure by which it works. And last week we talked about models. Today we're going to begin to move into uh, patterns a little bit and then take it on a little deeper next week. But last week you remember that we talked about the model church was the church at Antioch where they're first called Christians. Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 13. And we saw there within that church five great things that I want you to remember. We saw the diversity of the church. They had come from all walks of life, but yet they were, they were the second thing. There was a unity within that church. Unity is the key. The third thing I showed you was how that God worked through people's lives in, in respect Paul and Barnabas through the local body. It wasn't somebody just getting up and deciding they were going to do what they wanted to do. There's a structure to it. And that structure works perfectly. Most importantly, we define the ministry for us, and that is ministering unto the Lord. Uh, giving to the Lord uh, and learning what that, that really means. Giving God what He wants. The fifth thing we saw was how that God's structure uh, for the New Testament will be the local church. Everything will flow through the program that God has established. And then I, I talked about what I look for in people. I talk about looking for people that are able to be touched by God, that God can do something, mold you, make you. I talk about people that I look for that are teachable, that they'll take the things of God and do something with it in their life. I talked about people who are trustworthy, that once God gives you the unsearchable riches, gives you the, the greatest uh, power on this earth, that you do what's right with it. And then I look for people who are thankful. Someone who never forgets what God has done for them, never forgets what God has given them, and then spends uh, the rest of their life fulfilling it. And I made it very clear that, uh, that in, the, in the ministry, within this church, I'm looking for a certain kind of person. I know there's all kinds of people out there, very frankly, and you know this to be true. Uh, uh, it's really hard for employers to find uh, good employees today. Most of the kids that come out of high school, they don't want to work. Uh, they don't want to do a hard day's work to make any money. They, uh, you know, I know that employers, they just, they just dread uh, hiring somebody new because they only laugh. They won't show up for work or they party. They don't come in. It's hard to find good people today, young people, who really understand the work ethic of really doing a good job for their employer. And it's the same thing with churches. It's hard to find God's people today who are really dedicated and understand what this is all about. 
I mean, we could fill an auditorium up like Joe Olstein does and have 25, 26,000 people. <clears throat> but where are they during the week? What are they doing? It's the key is understanding what, that, that, that for a ministry that's going to do what I want to do, it is not going to be for everybody. I read a story this last week about the youngest Medal of Honor recipient. Now, if you talk to a military guy or whatever and you talk about the Medal of Honor... Never talk about somebody winning the Medal of Honor. You don't win the Medal of Honor. You'll be, you receive the Medal of Honor. It's a really big deal with them. It ain't like winning the lottery. If you receive the Medal of Honor, you're a recipient to it because of what you did. You didn't win anything. It was presented to you based on what you did. This guy's name was Jack Lucas. You can Google him on uh, any time you want and really look into it. He, uh, we have any kids here that are 14 years old? Uh, guys. Stand up. You, both of you guys 14? You're 14? You're 14. He's 14 years old. Jack Lucas was 14 years old when he joined the Marine Corps in 1942. You can sit out. <laughs> he was an old farm boy and he looked a lot older than he was. But he was 14 years old. In the middle of World War II, the darkest period of time, 1942, he joined the Marine Corps at 14 years of old, age. Most kids at 14 today, they, they're not ready for combat in the Marine Corps. They're not ready for the onslaught of a bonsai charge of the Japanese in the middle of the night. They're all right for softball, baseball, football, soccer, but let's face it. At 14 years old, most young men are not ready for the combat that this guy faced. At 14, he joined the Marine Corps. He went to Hawaii and was attached to a combat unit there uh, that was an amphibious combat unit that was ready to see combat. He was writing letters, he was writing letters back and forth to somebody, and the censors saw it and realized he was only 14 years old. They pulled him out of the combat unit and put him in an area for driving trucks. This kid wanted combat so bad that he just did all kinds of stuff and got into all kinds of trouble. When his unit was going overseas to fight in combat, he deserted, stowed on the ship, and went with his unit to the combat group. He found out after three or four, three or four weeks on the ship, they put him in the brig. After a period of time when he had turned 17 years of old, he made his plea that he wanted to be in a combat unit, and they put him in a combat unit, and he attacked February the 12th, Iwo Jima, which was one of the bloodiest battles of the Pacific War. On the second day of battle, he and his buddies are climbing up a ridge and they're into a shell hole and a Japanese throws a hand grenade into the, into the, into the shore with four or five of his buddies there. Jack Lucas jumps on the grenade, puts all the sand around it, and another one came in. He grabbed that one and stuck it underneath of him and it exploded, severely wounding him. They thought he was dead. They left him there. A day and a half later as they were coming through, the medics saw that he was still alive. He had over 15 surgeries. Fifteen surgeries. The rest of his life, he carried around over 200 pieces of shrapnel in his body. That didn't stop him. When he got discharged from the Marine Corps in 1945 at the end of the war, he joined the Army and became part of the 82nd Airborne. On his first jump from 3,000 feet, both chutes failed to open. One chute spiraled up, the other one caught a little bit of air, but he came down a lot faster. And if he wouldn't have hit the trees that broke his fall, he would, but he just had minor injuries, and he jumped the next week. President Truman awarded him the Medal of Honor for his heroics on Iwo Jima. The kid never quit. He never stopped. He had a goal that he wanted to do, and nothing or nobody was going to stop him from that goal. He died in 2008. The youngest recipient of the Medal of Honor, President Truman, put it around his neck when he was 17 years old. That's the kind of kid I'm looking for. I comb through life. I look at every one of you when you come in. I comb through everybody that God puts across my path to look for Jack Lucases. For people who will never quit. To people that will fight with the endurance because you have a goal, in our case, for God, that you want to do something for God, and nothing or nobody is going to stop you. Fourteen years old. One uh, was awarded the Medal of Honor when he was 17 years old. 
I'm looking for somebody with that kind of loyalty, that kind of determination, that kind of self-sacrifice. And he did it as a PFC, and he got busted back to private when he went AWOL. He did it for $12 a month. And God will give unto you and me all the riches of glory, the aristocracy of heaven, and we won't even think about being dedicated to what he wants us to do. I'm not looking for everybody. I'm looking for the Jack Lucases in this world. I'm looking for the men and women that will not quit. I'm looking for the men and the women that will have a vision of God and what he wants them to do, and nothing or no one will stop you. That's what I'm looking for. And they're out there. They're out there. And I'm telling you, we talk about models and patterns. God has a model and a pattern for everything. They make up the mind of Christ. One of the key concepts I want you to know and understand is that the New Testament local church is the only structure, it's the only program that God has that has He ordained for New Testament Christianity to flow through. And that's a hard concept for, for Laodicean Christianity today, who have forsaken the church that Christ loved, forsaken and gave up the church that Christ died for, for some watered-down replacement. And I'll take it one step further. A church that will not recognize that the King James Bible as God's Word and use another Bible that God never put in print will never be a New Testament-based Bible-believing church according to the Scriptures. Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 through 20, talks about that church that has put Christ on the outside of the church and he's knocking on the door trying to get back in. It's the difference between the church of the open door and the church of the closed door. Now, I've been criticized all my life for my stand against higher education when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to Bible colleges, when it comes to seminaries and schools of divinity. And I might add that that criticism of me is a true criticism. I wear it as a combat badge of honor. Because I understand, going on the record, I understand that there's absolutely no justification for any organization outside the New Testament local church when it comes to training young men and young ladies for the, with the Word of God. The fact that the church has abdicated that and gave it over to the world... It's not my problem. The Bible is still the Word of God. The two greatest tricks that ever, ever pulled on the 20 and the 21st century Christianity was, one, to get people to believe that the body of Christ, the priesthood, the true priesthood, did not have full custodianship of the Word of God. Back in the Old Testament, when it came to the Old Testament Scriptures, there was one group of people that had custodianship of the Bible. It was the Levites, the priestly tribe. And the New Testament, there's one body that has custodianship of the Word of God. And that'll be the priesthood of, of Jesus Christ, the eternal priesthood, the church, the body of Christ, you and me. God never gave it to a Bible college. He never gave it to anybody outside the local church. Never did. And the second thing that the devil has fooled everybody on is the fact that the local church, somewhere along the line, ceased to be the structure by which God was going to teach you the Bible and prepare you for the ministry. I know where it comes in, in history. Don't have time to get into it this morning. When you go back to the new evangelical movement and the new orthodox movement back at the turn of the uh, century, around 1900, when we began to move into the 20th century, they took away the common Bible out of the common man. What you have here is so unique because what God is building here is men and women, just ordinary men and women, common men with a common Bible. You're the most powerful force in the universe. You're the most powerful force anywhere in the world because the deadliest force in Christianity will just be people just like you who believe a book that God gave you. And I'll tell you something, the devil wants to take it from you. He does. First Bible college in the Bible is found in Acts chapter 19. It's a school there that goes against Paul and they're teaching against the things of God. And I totally understand. You know, I've had people 
maybe not here today, maybe, maybe somebody listening. I've had people that went to Bible college or, you know, they get this idea that their college is the greatest college on the planet and uh, that, you know, they, they take offense to things that I say like this. Hey, I get it. I understand. I understand. I totally understand why somebody who spent four or five years of their life going to a Bible college or a seminary spending what, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000? I know how hard it is to admit that you've been suckered. I know how pride gets in the way when you have to admit you've been ripped off. Scammed. Hoodwinked. Bought some swamp, swamp, swamp line in Florida. I've had people that went to Liberty Bible College down there where Jerry Falwell started it years ago and, and thought that was the greatest school to learn the Bible in the world. Worst place you could go. Some go to Cedarville out in Ohio. Worst place you could go. Right up the road here, we got Calvary Bible College. They know nothing about Calvary. You go to Chicago and go to Moody Bible Institute. Ridiculously stupid. Tennessee Temple. Bob Jones University. You gotta be kidding me. You name it. BBC down in Springfield. A waste of time. I mean, you spent three or four years of your life and thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, and now I got kids in a high school class who know more Bible than you do. When Logan stood up here and laid that out to you, that was as good as it gets. We got high school kids, college kids that know more Bible being here, just coming up through our program and our Bible studies. Most of you, I say it all the time, I would put most of you up against any of those people. They spent all of that time, don't know anything about the Bible. I get it. It's embarrassing. I understand. You bought into a system. You bought into a system that somebody told you was the way to learn the Bible. Believe me. They only exist for one reason, and that is that they're going to take the Bible from you. And I get it. It's got to be embarrassing. I mean, we're going on a record today. I, I understand. I mean, how stupid are you? I mean, I don't mean that in a bad way. That's a good question. Think about it. Why would you pay forty or $50,000 to learn a book that God gave you freely? Amen. What is wrong with us? He said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, freely receive, freely give. Who in the world are you to charge somebody forty, fifty thousand dollars to teach them a Bible that God gave you free? Amen. And how stupid are you to pay it? Amen. You should you shouldn't use the word stupid. It's not a good word. I know it's not a good word, and I don't like to use it. You know when I'll stop using it? Quit being stupid. I mean, if brains was gunpowder, you wouldn't have enough to blow your nose. <laughs> and don't get mad. If you're listening to this, don't get mad. Think it through. Give me book, chapter, verse for why you did what you did. A lot of kids go to Bible college because mom and dad want them to go. Because they've been brainwashed in the idea that that's what you do to learn the Bible. You know what the biggest joke is among preachers in this country today? The biggest joke that they laugh about is Bible colleges. And yet they'll send their kids there all the time. Because that's what you're supposed to do. We have bought into it that the church is not the format for higher education when it comes to the Bible. We think that us deluded pastors can only take you so far. Well, pal, show up on Thursday night and I'll show you how far I'll take you. Let me tell you something. The body of Christ is everything you need to be everything God wants you to be when it's done right. Now, I, can't, I can't apologize for the idiots out there that don't understand that. Most pastors don't want to pastor. They want to get a paycheck. They want to do as little as possible. I mean, let me tell you something. When the weather forecast comes on on a, on a, on a Wednesday Tuesday, when they're saying that Wednesday it might snow, Sunday it might snow, they're already canceling their church services. They want that night off. They might as well. They don't give their people anything anyhow. Get on the website. You'll get something there. But I'm telling you, when you, when you get back to the Bible, you don't have a leg to stand on. I had a kid years ago that 
was going to Cairo Bible College and he got kicked out. And he was a nice kid and he come by the church, our church back then, and he wanted to talk to a pastor. Well, I was the only one there, so they asked me if I had talked to this kid. And I said, sure. And so he came in and I, I said, what's the matter, son? He said, well, he says, I just need to talk to the pastor to get some advice. I said, okay. He says, I just got kicked out of Calvary Bible College. And I, and I said, what for? And he said, well, they accused me of looking in the girls' dorms windows. And I knew that wasn't true because he was too short. <laughs> just a little guy. And he says, he says, I didn't do it. And he says, they wouldn't let me, they wouldn't let me, they wouldn't let me tell my side of the story. The Bible says that, that you have to be brought before the witnesses. And he went through all of these things the Bible says has to be done. And he says, I'm really upset that it wasn't done. And I said, well, I don't mean to upset you any further, but it don't have to be done. Those things were given to a church. That's not a church. They don't have to follow the same lines a church does. They can do whatever they want to do. They're not a church. They've never been ordained by God for anything. They are an idea in man's mind that you're going to take the true church, you, and the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God and lift it out of here and put it in some institution of higher learning and you're going to get more Bible. He didn't, he, he, he didn't understand that. I mean, you, you, have learned, you have learned a set of terms. Really, we, we, on, on Thursday night, somebody will ask the question, hey, what about Adam and Eve and the sin of man? And what about the depravity of man? And we'll talk about it. But if we were in Bible college, we'd call that anthropology. $25 word. Somebody would say, I, I want to talk about salvation. In Bible college, we talk about sodiontology. See, to me, it's God's simple plan of salvation, but to them, it's sodiontology. We're talking about the church. I'm teaching about the church. But if we were in Bible college, this would be a class on eschatology. Aren't you impressed? You see, if I talked right now, when you leave here, if I stood back there and said, pay me for what I said, I'd get 25 cents. Couldn't buy a Burger King burger. But if I used these big words, you'd think you were getting something. The lunch pockets would be full. We talk about the Holy Spirit. In the annals of higher education, it's pneumonology. We talk about Christ, Jesus Christ. In the annals of higher learning, it's Christology. I talk about how to teach you the Bible. In the upper levels of, of understanding of knowledge, it's Hermeneutics. When a guy does it, it's more like hemorrhoidnutics, but it's, it's the same. I talk about the practical application. That's hortiontology. See? Wow, aren't you impressed? See, this is where you're stupid. You gave up four or five years of your life, spent thirty or $40,000 to learn to talk like nobody in the Bible ever talked. You bought in a system of terms... Now you're going to go out and reach the world and you're going to learn to talk like Paul didn't talk that way. Jesus didn't talk that way. Barnabas didn't talk that way. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't talk that way. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla didn't talk that way. Nobody down through the Bible ever used those words and now you think you found it. I mean nobody. Listen. God's structure and God's program is a New Testament local church. I cannot be responsible that 99.9% .9 of them don't follow through and do what they're supposed to do and have advocated themselves over to the higher realm of education. That's not my deal. I'm telling you this. For the New Testament Christian in this church age, it will be a New Testament Bible-believing church who follows the models and the patterns, who takes you just like they did at the Church of Antioch and builds into you what God wants you to have. A New Testament church that understands the concept of ministering to the Lord, that will teach you that aspect. What Paul and John, they, they talked about the same thing. They're on the same page as we are. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the Bible says, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Yeah, they're up against the greatest minds of the day. 
And the Bible says they're hearing Peter and John speak. And they're perceiving. They're perceiving that, boy, they've never been where we went to school. They never got a degree. They've never been to Bible college. They don't have any of the wisdom and the knowledge that we got. We, we, we perceive them as, as unlearned and ignorant men, but they saw the boldness. And you know what it came down to that gave them that boldness? It wasn't the fact that they had been learned or they were not even ignorant. He says they marveled. Why? And they took knowledge of them. Why? Because they'd been with Jesus. Let me tell you something. If God and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God can't teach you everything He wants you to know, you're wasting your time anyplace else. It's just that simple. Now today, Paul himself, I've thought that that Paul himself in, in, in Philippians chapter 3 verse 8, Paul was one of the most educated men that ever lived. He had been schooled in the Old Testament by one of the greatest Old Testament theologians that the world ever saw. He understood every aspect of it. He was a doctor of the law. He knew everything about the Old Testament, and that's why God picked him. Because God had to have somebody who understood where the Jews were coming from that he could better put in perspective where the Gentiles were coming from. And he picked the man that was probably the most educated man of his day. And when Paul was faced with it in Philippians, you know what he said? He said, all that I have learned, all that I have gotten from man about the Bible and God is dung compared to what God gave me. That's just that simple. I don't know how people miss that. Now, today we're going to take and begin to look at the second aspect of understanding the church. That will be the pattern uh, that, uh, that will be uh, found in the Bible. And I wanted you to turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Let's look at it in verse 5. Who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things. Now, that's for you and for me. We serve every day of our life under a shadow of things that God made that will teach us Things that we don't understand. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, The greatest verse in the Bible probably on patterns and models where it says, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that were made even as eternal power and Godhead so that we're out of excuse. God uses patterns. God uses models. Patterns in the Bible will be the key to everything. Models in the Bible will be the key to everything. Now, I'm going to, I'm going, as I said last week, my goal here is to go on the record with all of this to leave a legacy of truth. I want men and women in this church, your kids growing up in this church, the people out there, and I don't know if you follow the website or not, but on every sermon, no matter who preaches it, we're getting two or 300 hits throughout the week. I get a phone call or a text or I get an email for, almost weekly from, from multiple people who are following that. And I'm telling you, I mean, uh, I, 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 I want to leave a legacy. I don't want to happen what happened with, with my father and the Lord and the men around there that never left a legacy of the great things that they learned from God, especially in the day and age that we live in. Now, let's talk about the church. I want you to know, first of all, and I think all this is important, I want you to know when the church started. The church age runs approximately 2,000 years. It starts in Acts chapter 20 with Paul there at the church at Ephesus, and it comes up and runs up to the rapture of the church. Approximately 2,000 years, how are you going to figure it? Now, I want to talk to you about when officially the church started. I think this is important. You've got people running around, they call themselves Baptist Briders. Uh, they call themselves Baptist Briders because they think as Baptists, they're the only bride of Christ, and they think that the Baptist church started with John the Baptist. Now, that sounds logical, John the Baptist. So I'm a Baptist, so it probably started with him. That sounds really good till you get a Bible. <coughs> and then you find out that John the Baptist, uh, he came to baptizing to manifest Christ to Israel. He had nothing to do with the church. Not a thing. So that isn't work. Then you got all kinds of people that believe all kinds of stuff. I want to give you some really good practical stuff about the Bible that will help you in many, many areas of studying the Bible. First of all, in understanding where the church started, let me say this. God, whenever he does something major, God will always do it through a transition. God will never stop something on Monday and start it on Tuesday. He, he always will put a transition through it. 
When you look at the nation of Israel from going to Abraham to Israel, Abraham is the father of the Jews. You study that, there's a transition there. He brings him through. I don't know if you know it or not, but you've got a King James Bible sitting in your lap today probably. There was a transition of those Bibles. There are seven English translations. Seven English translations that start uh, back there uh, with Wycliffe in 1392 that comes all the way up to your King James Bible in 1611. The Bible went through transitions. It didn't go through revisions. It went through additions. But they were transitions that God got the final form. Why? Because God does everything through transition. He just does. You'll see that uh, when you, he, he transitions from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He transitions from the Jew to the Gentile. He transitions from the law to grace. That's why the book of Acts is such a tough book. The book of Acts is one of the three transitional books in your Bible. You have three books in your Bible that are transitional books. You have Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews. And every heresy, every heresy, every heresy a person gets into today, whether it's a saved heresy or a lost heresy, one that you can go to heaven with but just be screwed up in the Bible or one that sends you to hell, every heresy on this planet will come out of one of those three books. You know why? Those are very important books. Those books are transitional books. You better know what you're doing when you get into Matthew. You better know what you're doing when you get into Acts. You better know what you're doing when you get into Hebrews. And oh, you know what? Your Christian life. Your Christian life is a transition. I've showed you before. You go through seven stages of spiritual growth. You start as a baby, you wind up as the agent. You go through seven stages in your growth process spiritually. That's a transition. That's a transition. Right now, we're where where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John transitioned us into the New Testament, we're transitioning out of the New Testament into the tribulation period. We're also in a transition period. We're on our way out. That's why I tell you this is the most exciting time that you're living. You're transitioning right now out. In God's mind, probably, I would say that the times of the Gentiles are over. He's just doing what he's got to do, but his full attention is on the Middle East and the nation of Israel, and we're transitioning out of this place. God's got a plan. Everything God will do, he'll do in a transition. Okay, let's see how the church came into being. It wasn't, as I said, just one day, and then it started the next. First of all, the church in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, is called a mystery. There's seven mysteries in the Bible. Sometime you need to learn them. In our institute, we'll teach them to you probably next year, maybe the year after. But there are seven mysteries. One of them is the church. In Romans chapter 16, verse 25, you're told that the mystery of the church was kept secret from the foundation of the world. God never told anybody about it. God never told anybody anywhere in the Old Testament anything about a church age. He kept it as a mystery. He kept it to himself. He never laid it out to anybody till Paul showed up. Because God wanted it, was doing some things. Sometimes God will do things and uh, he's got one thing going here, he's got something else going here, and he's waiting to see what somebody will do before he decides which way he's going to go over here. That's the church. So here's the four stages of the church. First of all, the church was called out in Matthew chapter 10. It's called out when he calls out the uh, 12 apostles. You're told over there in the Ephesians that they're the foundation of the church. Nobody knew it yet, but they were. Then it goes into effect in Matthew chapter 28 at the death of Christ, because Hebrews chapter 9 verse 16 says that the testament cannot come into full uh, view or full uh, working uh, property until the death of the testator. So even though they were called out in Matthew chapter 10, the church did not go into effect till the death of the testator, Christ. But even now, we know it was called out and now it's into effect, it did get empowered to Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. See how it works? And even though it was called out in Matthew chapter 10 and it went into effect in Matthew chapter 28 and got empowered in Acts chapter 2, it didn't get revealed until Paul comes on the scene in Acts chapter 13. See that transition? It's what God does. God transitioned the church in and now he's transitioning the church out and you're part of it right now. You see it so clearly when you understand the breakdown of the book of Acts and what he's doing in those transitional books. Now, along with that, you need to know this. In the Bible and down through history, uh, there have been, from Genesis to Revelation, seven different churches in effect. Now, this is a killer. Now, this is totally unheard of today, absolutely unheard of. And uh, everybody thinks that the church is us, and it is. But I got news for you. Nothing like a Bible to clear up your seminary education. 
when you get to the plate, when you get into the Bible, and you understand what a church is, the word church means called out. The word for it is ecclesia, which means called out. That's a $25 word that means uh, called out. And you're separated from the world. You're set apart with a commission. A church has a mandate from God. Okay, you go down through the Bible, you'll find, you'll find six, six people, circumstances that fit that description. They're called out, they're set apart, and God gives them the commission. Technically, under the Bible, they're a church. The first one is Adam and Eve. They're called out. They're given a commission in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. He said, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. He gave Adam and Eve complete dominion over everything. He separated them out, made them different from the animals, made them different from everything that he created. And then he gave them a commission. They're called out. That's your first church. The second one was Noah. Noah steps off that ark. He inherits the whole world. And he's given a commission in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. He's called out. He's separate. He preached for 120 years against the ungodliness of the earth. And when he steps off that ark, he's called out. Third one was Abraham. He's called out of the Ur of Chaldees in, in Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse 15, he gets his commission. God took him up there and said, Someday your seed's going to be like the stars of heaven. And I'm going to multiply your seed like the sands of the sea. He's called out. The fourth one is the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was called out in Exodus chapter 12. And just so you wouldn't miss it, in Acts chapter 7, verse 38, when Stephen's preaching it, you know what he calls the nation of Israel in Acts 7, 38? The church in the wilderness. There you go. Their church. Their church. The fifth one will be the apostles in Matthew chapter 10. They're called out with a commission. They have a mandate. They're to to separate themselves and go to the lost sheep of Israel. The sixth one is you and me. That'll be the New Testament church, the body of Christ, that's called out with a commission. Acts chapter 11, 12, and 13 in the book of Ephesians. You and I have a commission. The commission is to reproduce ourselves, to to bring back the fallen image of Adam and restore it into man. The seventh one will be the churches in the tribulation period, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. They're called out with a commission. That commission's found in Revelation 7 and Revelation chapter 14. Seven groups called out with a commission from God. Each one, based on the Bible definition of a church, falls into that category. A called out group. A church. Called out. You see, we get so hung up on terms that we forget what the Bible teaches. It isn't about what the Bible teaches or what the name church means. Or we have a church, or we were in a church age, or we're that. You go in your Bible and find out what a church is, you'll find there have, been, there, have been, there have been seven of them. Now our church, which runs, as I said, Acts chapter 20 to the rapture of the church, our church is, is unique from all the other ones. Our church is the only church that is in the kingdom of God. All the other ones except the tribulation church are in the kingdom of heaven. The one in the tribulation isn't any kingdom, that's the Antichrist kingdom. But our church, our church, this church, our church history, our church age is in the kingdom of God. This church is the only church that is made up of men and women who get into a spiritual body by a new birth that makes them a son of God. Nobody else does. Nobody else is. There's nobody else born again in the Old Testament. There's nobody born again in the tribulation period. The only group of people that are born again are, is the body of Christ right now. And that's why the Bible says we're called out to finish the work that God started with His Son. So we are born again and become a son of God. As 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. You're called out and you're separated. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We had fun with this Thursday night, didn't we? See? See? Now, now are you a son of God. But it doth not yet appear what you shall be. You're a beautiful woman, but you're an ugly man. See, that's what he's saying. Because what's born again of you right now is on the inside, not the outside. This outside's your flesh. 
It dwell inside this dwelleth no good thing. You couldn't do one thing for God in this flesh. God had to give you the fallen nature of Adam restored through Christ to a new birth, and now you are a spiritual being in a spiritual church that is Christ's body. Amen. And you're the only one. Amen. You're the only one. Moses will never have it. Elijah will never have it. Joshua will never have it. Tribulation saints will never have it. Nobody will ever have it other than the church age. So there may be seven distinct churches as the Bible defines them, but there's only one that is empowered with the Holy Spirit of God in the church age. That's you and me. You need to know that. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 says, But as many as received him, that it gave me power to become the sons of God, even them that believe in his name, which were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. All the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints were born of blood, they were born of flesh, and they were born of the will of man. You're not. When you got your new birth, you're born of God. You're spiritual. And you're in a spiritual body. So God calls us to, as a church to be a spiritual body called the body of Christ. And we now are a, a local assembly made up of men and women who have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. Where the other of the seven will be found in the kingdom of heaven, like I said, other than the tribulation one, we, they'll never be born again. Now I realize that scholarship teaches just the reverse. They'll teach you that the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 were born again believers. They'll teach you when the Bible says they don't believe in the giant. They don't believe in the fallen giant. They believe when it says that the sons of God come down and married uh, women. It's saved people marrying unsaved people. In other words, they'll teach you in scholarship, they'll teach you that in the Old Testament of Genesis 6, people were getting saved just like you are. But you'll know that heresy always has a way of tripping itself up over the Bible. Here I asked a guy one time, well, those were saved people back there. Those were sons of God just like us, and they were marrying unsaved women, but they were sons of God back there. I said, great. Why didn't they get on the ark? What happened? They go to a Joe Olstein concert and miss it? Rain too heavy, couldn't get there? If there's all these sons of God back, you see how stupid you are when you reject the Bible and you try to make up the Bible on your own? Anybody who halfway knows the Bible will cut your legs out from under you so fast you're unbelievable. We have a commission. Again, every Baptist church out there in a, in a, in a place will tell you that the great commission for the church is Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28 is not the commission for the church. If you could read your Bibles and go back to Psalm 90, 91, 92, 93, 94, all the way through there, you'd find out that that's a millennial commission given to the nation of Israel. The commission for the church is the model church at Antioch in Acts chapter 20. I'll show it to you here in a little bit. But that's where we're at today. Our job is to reproduce ourselves spiritually as sons of God through a spiritual new birth. Matthew chapter 28 is a millennial commission given to Israel. It's to nations. I'm not called to nations. I'm called to individuals. When you look at Psalm 96, Psalm 57, Psalm 66, Psalm 72, Psalms 82, Psalms 108, it's clear what you have in Matthew chapter 20. Oops. I'm sorry. That's in the Bible. Excuse me. Our church, as any church should be, but our church will be. Our church will always be and form the base camp for all spiritual operations and ministries that we undertake. It has to start right here with us. We'll train our people, we'll grow up our people, and in time we'll send our people out to the various places that God sends us. Wichita, Lincoln, uh, Washington State, based on the model of Acts chapter 11, 12, and 13. And we don't believe, we don't, we're not part of any Baptist fellowship. I know many churches are. I've got good friends that swear by, oh, I'm, you know what, I, I went to this Bible college and we go down there and we're, our church is a fellowship of this loose fellowship of those pastors. Let me tell you something. You know why most pastors fellowship with other pastors and other fellowships? That's because they've got nothing going on with their own people. I don't have time to fellowship with somebody that I'm going to sit around and listen to him gripe about his church is not growing. I'm having too much fun talking with you by why this one is. I have too much fun dealing with you in the Bible and sitting down there and listening to some pious gas bag get up and, and talk about what's going on and what's doing and what he's not doing. We don't belong to those. We operate solely in the New Testament principles.
Most people don't understand. You hear the term the independent movement? Well, we're an independent Baptist church. Let me tell you what that means. Back in the 1920s and the 30s, the Southern Baptist Convention, Southern Baptist Church uh, in the convention, was the main Baptist stay in America. You had the American Baptist, which was smaller. You had the GRB, which was uh, a little bit bigger. But the Southern Baptist ruled. The, there was no independent Baptist. And what happened was that J. Frank Norris, and we talked about this before, he was their fair-haired boy, but he didn't put up with all of the goofy stuff that was going on in the Southern Baptist Church. If you're a Southern Baptist today, and I know many of them don't adhere to this, but if you're a Southern Baptist church today, they tell you what to preach. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you don't have a right to do your own lessons. They'll send you the lessons. Now, not everybody follows them, but you're supposed to. And they basically have control over you. Uh, If you need a pastor, they'll send you one. Most Southern Baptist churches, many of them, are owned by the Southern Baptist Convention. That's so they can never become anything else. When J. Frank Norris left the Southern Baptist Convention, he started the independent movement. Originally, the independent movement was that we were independent of anybody telling us what to do. But what happened over the years with the independent Baptists is they got so independent, they got independent of God. I have people all the time say, are you an independent Baptist church? And I said, no, I'm a dependent Baptist church. I'm dependent on God and the Word of God and everything that we do. See, that term has lost its power, its punch. But you need to know where it came from. You need to know how it started. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I am independent of all of those things out there. This church stands on its own. It has its own leadership. It has its own structure. It has its own governing body. It has everything that we need. We don't need any, I don't say we're not friends with other people. We don't do things with them. They can come over. We'll do all things together. Fine. But at the end of the day, we stand on our own through the Word of God. You know, the word self is usually not a good word in Christianity, you know, because it always gets tied to somebody, you know, all about themselves or selfish. But in a good biblical sense, every New Testament church should be five things about self. Every Baptist church should be self-sufficient. You shouldn't look outside what God has given you to take care of what you need. You should be self-sufficient. Not only not about the offerings and money, but that's about the Bible and your training and your teaching. You ought to have everything that you need right here to be ever what God wants you to be. The second thing a church should be is self-motivating. Now, I'm not against this, and I'm not saying I wouldn't do it from time to time. I've got a couple guys in mind that I'd like to have come and preach here. But uh, a lot of churches, they'll just have guys come in that are motivational preachers just to motivate the people. I'm going to tell you something. It's my job to motivate you. And if you think I can't light a fire under you, you're talking to the wrong guy. I know you. I know what you're made of. I know where you're at. I know what you're thinking. And I know where your struggles are. And let me tell you, you can't pay a guy to come in and light a fire under somebody who doesn't know the people. Motivation goes back to us being motivated together. It goes back to a common cause, not some guy that's running a circuit. Every pastor ought to be able to motivate his people. He motivates them through leadership. He motivates them through his own motivation. Why would you ever get excited about studying the Bible if I'm not excited about studying the Bible? Why would you ever want to get into ministry if I'm not excited about getting into ministry? That's the key. Bringing some hired hand in to do it for you will never work. I'll tell you something else. The church needs to be self-propagating. It needs to grow from within. It needs to grow because you people are the ones who bring people in. I, I've told you this many, many times. For the first four or five years we had a church, we didn't have a sign. Because I told people that you're the sign. Many of you came here because somebody else brought you here. You came here and you said to yourself, whoa, this is what I need. Or you came here and said, <laughs> once is enough. I get it. I get it. I get it. I'm hard to take sometimes. Once a me is enough. I get it. You've got to have some kind of mental deficiency to be around here for any length of time. I get it. And every church should be self-cleaning. When you do your job with the Bible, you're going to keep the Jack Lucases and the Jackies are going to go. You're going to keep the men. You're going to keep the ones who want to do it and the ones that can't cut it. It's okay. It's all right. A church needs to be self-sufficient, self-motivating, self-propagating, but it needs to be self-cleaning. And you do that by just preaching the Bible. 
And then the church needs to be self-governing. We have everything we need right here. We have our deacons. We have our finance committee. We have the people who, who uh, know the Bible as good or better than I do, who, who handle situations and things. Uh, we don't need anybody but God and the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God. And this is, all, this is all things that you need to understand about the intro of understanding the pattern of a church. East New Testament Bible church needs to be autonomous, unto itself, within its own structure, based on a pastor. It will stand alone on the principles of the Word of God and the men and women that are in it. The church within it only has two offices. It has the pastor, who in the Bible is sometimes called a bishop, First and Second Timothy, and the deacons in Acts chapter 6. Those are the only two offices that they have. There's no women preachers. There's no women deacons. The Bible's very clear on how the process goes. You get a church that has women preachers or has women deacons in it, there's somebody that completely stepped outside the realm of the Bible, and they're just doing what they want to do. I don't care. None of my business. But you are not a New Testament local church. Each church within itself has all that it needs to win people, to train people, to send them out to do the job that God has called us to do. Look over at Acts chapter 20. I want to show you our commission. Now we know from, we know from Acts chapter 12 and 13 we know how this thing plays itself out. We see the church in its pattern. Now let me show you the church's mandate. In Acts chapter 20, and by the way, I've told you this before. <coughs> when you break down the book of Acts, fundamentally here's how you break it down. You put you draw two lines in the book of Acts. The first line you draw, the first line you the first line you draw is after Acts chapter 7. The second law you draw is at Acts chapter 20, after Acts chapter 19. The book of Acts will divide itself up, Acts chapter 1 through 7, split. Acts chapter 8 through 19, split. Acts chapter uh, 20, split. Acts chapter 21 to 28, there's your third section. It's simple. You study the book of Acts and break it down in that section and understand each section, you'll get the book of Acts. What I'm saying is this, in Acts chapter 20, when you start the third, uh, end, of the, end of the second section, you're starting church history. <clears throat> you look at our chart over there, the seven, uh, seven periods of church history, the first one is Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, guess where Paul's at? He's at Ephesus. Fundamentally, the book of Acts, for you and for me as church, ends in Acts chapter 20. All you have in 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28 is Paul going down to Jerusalem and being in jail. But church history and the book of Acts, as far as what God is doing, ends in Acts chapter 20, and it also picks up in Acts chapter 20 with the church at Ephesus. And Paul is getting ready to go down to Jerusalem, and he meets with the elders here, and he preaches to them. And he lays out for them, he lays out for them some great principles. He gives them six things that make up the commission for the church. Six things that he tells this church. This is the last thing that Paul says to a New Testament local church, which becomes the first church in church history. The last message he preaches to anybody about a church is the first church that starts church history, the church at Ephesus. And it's a very moving chapter, I want to tell you. It's basically Paul's farewell message. And most of these people know that Paul's making a big mistake. He's going down to Jerusalem. He's been told several times by God himself not to go. But it's one of those things where his burden for the nation of Israel uh, outweighs, you know, what he's, his common sense. And he goes and he basically uh, ends his ministry at that point And then he dies down in a Roman prison. So it's a very, putting it in the right context, it's a very emotional farewell. At the end down there, they're weeping, they're crying, they're hugging on him. They know they're never going to see him again. And they know what he meant to their church. He know the impact and the influence. But before he leaves for Jerusalem, in his farewell message, he leaves this church a pattern of six things that they are to do to get the job done. And here forms our commission. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to give you the verses, and I'm going to tell you what each one is, and you need to mark them in your Bible. 
The first one is verse 19 where he tells them that they are to serve the Lord with all humility of mind and of spirit. He's saying, you know what? You don't lord over people. You realize that as a church, they're there to serve people. You got people in your church, in this church and every church who are struggling. They're hurting. You got people who are struggling with everything. Sometimes they're struggling because of their own stupidity. Sometimes they're struggling because of nothing that, was, that they did wrong. It doesn't matter. As long as they're coming to church and as long as they're trying to do what's right, you never judge them for it. You just try to help them. You keep the humility in what you're doing of your mind, uh, 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 the mind of a servant. You keep that thing going where you're not here to judge somebody unless they're just blatantly out causing a problem. It doesn't matter what they've done or where they're at. Sure, don't you think they know they've screwed up? Don't you think they know they made a mistake? Absolutely. they got to live with it every day. The humility of the mind of a church is to take people who are hurting and broken. In most churches today, we're not interested in the hurting or broken. We're only interested in the rich. What they can do for this church. I've never met a church that was ever built of any substance with rich people. I bet I have met a lot of churches that built with substance for broken people. Jacob never became the man of God that he wanted God to be until God broke him. And you know what? He limped the rest of his life. Every day. He began to walk. He had to limp. He had to remember the day that he fought against God's will and God won. Which brings up a thing in my ministry. You know what? Never trust a man or a woman who doesn't limp. There are certain things that will come into our lives that are bad things at the time we go through, but they'll make you in time. But the church has to have the humility of mind to see that. Second thing is in verse 20. He says, I kept back nothing that was profitable to you, the giving of truth to others. He says, I, I didn't hold anything back that was profitable for you. This church exists for one thing, for you to profit by it. I'm going to give you what you need to grow. I won't always give you what you want, but I will give you what you need to grow. I will give you what you need to profit. You know what? We all got messed up in our lives. You know why? Because we thought there was profit in something that we got into that wasn't much profit in. And sometimes we got to sell those shares off and invest in some other things. But a church should be for one thing. It should be for your profit. You should leave here better this morning than when you came in this morning. You show up on Thursday night, you should leave better when you leave than than you came in. You sit down with discipleship or counseling or with somebody in this church... When you're done, you ought to be better off and more profitable than when you started it. That's what a church does. Then the third thing, verse 28, or 21, excuse me. Evangelism. Reaching people. Finding a way to penetrate our culture. Finding a way to reach people where they're at. I think the greatest enigma and stigma to Baptist churches is that church over there in Kansas, wherever it is, that uh, always picking in everybody's grave. Westboro United, crazy church, Baptist, whatever. <laughs> now, you know the saddest thing about it is? Most of the things that they pick it for are true. Homosexual is wrong. Unfortunately, Many of the soldiers that fight over there in the wars die and go to hell because they're probably not saved. They're not wrong in a lot of things they stand for. They're just terribly wrong in how they go about presenting it. It's a clear case of letting your good be evil spoken of. I wouldn't associate with them. I wouldn't even tell them they're right. I, I think that they, they're so far out of touch with the reality that they'll never win anybody to Christ. You know, everybody in that church is related to somebody else. They're just a big family. They don't ever get anybody saved. You know what? They'll never penetrate their culture. You see, it's one thing to have the truth. It's something else to have the grace to handle that truth. They may have the truth, but they don't have any ounce of grace. Then I find a lot of churches that got grace, but they got no truth. You've got to have a balance of grace and truth. You've got to have the truth, but you've got to have the grace to use it to reach where people are. I've told, I've told people all my life, you know, most pastors, they'll 
they'll put themselves up at the top of the stairs and look down here at all the people at the bottom rung of the stairs and they'll just scream and yell at them to get up where they're at, you know. Get up here. Put that stuff away. Get rid of that. Get rid of this. Get rid of that. Quit this. Quit that. Get up here with the rest of us spiritual folks. Let me tell you something. A real pastor doesn't stand at the top of the stairs and yells at the people down there. A real pastor goes down those stairs, puts his arm around and walks them up one step at a time. Paul said in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, that he prayed that God give him a door of utterance. That ought to be your prayer every morning when you go to work. For God to give you a door of utterance. I've told you before, out of, Matthew, or out of Acts, chapter, Acts chapter 8, where you have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip, the great evangelist, that God has a prepared sinner and a prepared servant. He was preparing them in two different parts of the world. But at the right time, the Holy Spirit of God brought them together. Right now, God is preparing out there somebody who is lost without hope, who needs the story of Christ. And he's counting on you to prepare yourself so the Holy Spirit of God can put you two together. Evangelism. The fourth one, verse 24, is steadfastness. A church, there's some things it needs to stand for. There's some things that a church needs to be steadfast on. There's some things that you as a child of God need to be steadfast on. I, I put up with a lot of things in Christianity, a lot of things with people. I got more patience probably with people than I should have. But I'll tell you one thing about people that drives me crazy. Christians. Wishy-washy. Can't stand for anything. Every time the... Every time the 155 starts coming in or the artillery starts coming in. You put your tail between your legs. You're so far down in a foxhole, you're halfway to China. <laughs> Steadfastness. There's some things that you need to stand for. It may cost you your friends. It may cost you relationships. It may cost you your job. It may cost you a, a price. But if Christianity and things in it that are true aren't worth standing for, then ain't none of it any good. And we are willing to get saved. We're willing to come to church, but we're not willing to stand, be steadfast. This church will be steadfast. It'll be steadfast. Say, well, I don't like everything you stand for. I don't really care. As long as God's happy with it, I don't really care whether you're happy or not. One word, steadfast. If you think it's wrong, come on Thursday night. I'll give you 45 minutes. No, I'll give you 50 minutes. It'll only take me 10 to finish you off. Steadfast. The fifth thing, verse 27. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. You need to get all the Bible. I don't want to teach you what you want to hear. I don't want to teach you things that make you my friend and never be mad at me. I don't want to teach you things that you might leave if I say it. I'll be honest with you. I sit back there and I mean, I'm human, but only for a short time. Well, I'm human all the time. I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> I sit back there sometimes to come in here and somebody will say, we got nine or ten visitors today. And I'll look at them and size them up and I'm glad they're here. But I know that some of the things I got to say this morning, you got to be careful with some of that stuff because maybe they don't, maybe they're not ready for that yet. So I sit back there and I, I, I brood for about five or six seconds. <laughs> and I say to myself, I got all these people out here that came to hear the truth. Now I got four or five people here that are visitors. I know some of the things I say they probably haven't heard, and I don't want to really make them upset or mad. So what am I going to do? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to preach the whole counsel of God. That's what I'm going to do. Because I've learned over the years that sometimes maybe that's why God them here, they brought them here to hear what they got to hear. I'll tell you something else. Some of you, you didn't get right with God or turn your life around until you get mad at what I said first. See? I'm not here to be your best friend, though I am your best friend. I'm here to preach to you the truth. I'm here to give you all the counsel of God, not what you just want to hear, not what fits in what you want to do. The Bible's the Bible. It lays itself out for everything we have to do. My job is to put it out there to you. Then the, the last thing, verse 28 through 31. I'll read this one to you. Take ye therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which hath which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember. And by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day 
with tears. You see, when you're a leader, you're an overseer. You take the oversight of the people that are younger than you spiritually. You oversee what goes on. Make sure it takes care of everything gets done the way it should. You feed the church. You give them what they need. You realize, and the reason why you're an overseer, that uh, grievous wolves will come in. And they won't spare the flock. And then he tells you in verse 29 and 30 that some of them are within the church already that's going to cause you problems, and some are without the church are going to try to come in to draw away disciples after themselves. And he says, uh, he says, for three years, I told you to watch and I warned you. To watch and warn. I warned you to watch. Watch. If there's anything that needs to be watched over by God's people who love the book, it's God's people within the church. And most of God's people, they're too busy doing their own thing. We have a responsibility not only to the Word of God, we have a responsibility not only to do the ministry of God, but I want to tell you something. We have a responsibility to each other. Yes. And our responsibility is to take care of each other. And it's a situation where uh, it, uh, that's, that's the key. Well, now all of this is only the beginning of understanding the pattern. This is the in- beginning of the inter-understanding of the structure of the church. Next week, we're going to go inside. I'm going to show you another pattern. I'm going to show you several patterns of how this thing works, how it, how it goes together, how it all pulls together, and how that, at the end of the day, the model and the pattern give us exactly an understanding. So if any of you young men or any of you young ladies ever marry a guy who's in the ministry or goes in to be a pastor, you'll have this material on the record that you'll understand it.